Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we have a new Sly Flourish bundle of holding going on right now. You really want to get on this deal. Raging Swan also has a really good deal going on on DriveThruRPG. We're going to take a look at a cool Dyson logo commercial map gallery that I created for patrons of Sly Flourish. Wizards of the Coast added Ghostfire products to D&D Beyond. I'm going to dive into this topic a little bit. We're going to talk about that for a little bit. Then I want to talk about high value prep. What are the things that we can do during our prep that really have a high value? When we're looking at all of the things that we do to prep for our game, there are things that have high table value. There are things that we might spend a lot of time on that it turns out didn't have a lot of table value. So where do we put that energy? We're going to talk about that. And we're going to cover the remainder of the questions from the November 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the outstanding patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of tools, tips, tricks, adventures, products, dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, tons of stuff that you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. But most of all, you help me put on shows like this. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. I have partnered once again with Bundle of Holding. We did this about a year and a half ago. The Sly Flourish Bundle of Holding is now going on. It's taking a, taking place right now up until December 18th, but you want to jump on this soon so you don't miss it because it's an outstanding deal. Basically, you're getting close to $100 worth of Sly Flourish books for just around 20 bucks. This includes a bunch of the Lazy DM books. It includes all of the fantastic books, all bundled together in PDFs and EPUB with all of the maps that you need to run them in virtual tabletops, all for a very, very low price. For six bucks, you can pick up Sly Flourish's Lazy DM Tips, the original 2012 version of the Lazy Dungeon Master, and Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and the Lazy DM's Workbook. It does not include Forge of Foes, and it does not include the Lazy DM's Companion, but includes everything else. The fantastic collection are all of my fantastic books, including Ruins of the Grendel Root, Fantastic Adventures, Fantastic Layers, and Fantastic Locations, all available with all of their art and map packs all included. For those that have an EPUB, you get the EPUB version all in one nice package. Now, many of you may have this, so one of the things you might want to do is give this to a DM friend. It's a great way to give a pretty low-cost gift to a fellow GM with a ton of material to help them run their game and to give them material that they can actually run for the game itself. The way to do that is to go to the Bundle of Holding website, log out of whatever your account is, and then order a new version using the email address of the friend that you want to send it to. When you do that, they will get an email that includes all of the links and the page on Bundle of Holding to be able to download their version of it. So that works really well. So please take a look at the Bundle of Holding. Please consider it. Send it and recommend it to other people. If you like the work that I do and you want to share it, the best way you could do that, email it to your other DM friends. Go on social media, tell other people about it, tell them what an outstanding deal it is because it's a limited time deal. You're only getting it now and until the 18th of December. But check it out. It's really good. Speaking of bundles, I just found out before the show that Raging Swan has an enormous bundle going on on DriveThruRPG right now. And like it says, you already own this title. It is the 2021 5e Mega Bundle. I can't even count how many products are in here, but it's a whole lot. It's, about, again, about $100 worth of various products that you can pick up for $20. Look at this. Look at this download list of stuff that you get. It's almost so many that it's like hard to deal with. But the way I'm going to deal with it is I'm just going to read through the list, and when I see one that gets my attention, I'm going to download that one. Probably I'll go back and try to download them all and stick them in a directory because that's what you really want to do. But it's a lot of stuff, but it looks really, really good. If you like Raging Swan stuff, I love Raging Swan products. 
products. I'm going to give an example of one of the products I sort of just grabbed because it grabbed my attention, and that was the Plague Village. So it's called Urban Dressing Plague Town, and this gives you an idea of the sort of stuff that you get in all of these different products. Where again, for twenty dollars, and get like it looks like hundreds of them, you know, tons of it. And a big one is like Sights and Sounds, a D a D one hundred list of different sights and sounds you might roll on when the characters are going to a Plague Town. I actually just ran a Plague Town for one of my D and D games, which is actually set in the Raging Swan setting of Shadowed Keep of the Borderlands. I really wish I'd had this then. I really wish I'd used it then. It would have been great. Here's all. A whole bunch of different sort of businesses that operate there, folks of interest, lots of stuff you can use. So imagine getting dozens and dozens and dozens of these kinds of hooks and tricks and NPCs and locations and encounters that you can drop right into your game. Fantastic stuff. So $20, I would definitely, I, not only would I definitely pick it up, I did pick it up. As soon as I heard about it, I dropped the 20 bucks and I picked it up. So check out Raging Swans drive through uh, the bundle on DriveThruRPG. So last week I talked about Drake Kobold Sun's Exotic Weapons and Gadgets Guide, a 5e supplement that you can pick up on DriveThruRPG that has a bunch of different sort of Gamma World style equipment and objects that you can drop into your traditional 5e game, including advice for how you would drop these into your game, maps that you can use for encounters and other such things. I failed to bookmark it or stick it in the table of contents on the YouTube video. So I'm coming back to it again, because if you want to check this out, you can check it out in the show notes of this video. And you can also check back last week. I went back and reset up the bookmark in the video if you want to take a look at a preview of this thing. But it looks like it's a it's a very cool looking very cool looking accessory. I like it. And again, if you if you dug Gamma World, I think this is kind of a fun way to add Gamma World stuff to your regular game. Sorry for failing to link it into the show notes for last week. The problem is by the time I add it, everyone's already watched the video so or listened to the podcast or whatever. So I wanted to add it to this video as well. I offer many different features to patrons of Sly Flourish. Lots of different things that you can get. Lots of tips, tools, tricks, things that you can use. I want to highlight another one. I built this uh, probably a couple of weeks ago. So uh, Dyson of DysonLogos.com gives away a tremendous amount of maps, about 500 maps that he is giving away as commercially licensable maps. These are maps that you can use for commercial purposes. And I love them. But I'm always worried about two things. What if that site goes down one day? That's one concern. But also, wouldn't could we come up with a gallery that makes it a little bit easier for us to be able to pick? these maps quickly for our game. So I came up with something that does both, which is the Dyson Logos Commercial Map Gallery. This is a feature available to patrons of Sly Flourish. When you sign up as a patron, you can get this as a link on the tools side. If you go to your Patreon rewards page, which is the first bookmarked page as a patron, you will see a tool section. This is a list of one of the many tools that's available. And the idea here is that it is a single web page that has 500 maps from Dyson's commercially licensed map pack. It has a little slider bar so you can decide how big you want your thumbnails to be. This way, it actually works on well on both mobile and on desktop. However big your monitor is, you can maximize the window and expand it out, and it works really well. And what you do is you just kind of go through and you say, oh, I want a temple map. Okay, I, I have this temple map. You save it, you download it, and you're done. Right, The thumbnails are all very small, so it actually performs very well. Even though it's got lots and lots of images, it performs well on modern, on modern machines. It's not super slow. And you can just kind of pick a map that you say that grabs you, 
and, and you're off to the races. So I have found this to be the fastest way for me to pick a map to fill in a location for my game. I wanted to share it with others. And one of the neat things is you can download your own local copy. So you can click this link. You get a local zip file that has all of the maps and the thumbnails and the HTML page that you can open in a browser on your local machine and do the same thing locally. You don't have to trust that I'm going to keep it up forever either. You can download your own copy and keep it off on your own and, and use it your own way. So that's something I wanted to highlight. Again, thanks to Dyson for making this all available a dyson every so often shows up in our twitch chat here what a resource what a what a tremendous value this 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 person's bringing to our hobby i use dyson maps constantly the idea of having 500 maps on hand that i can use for everything one day i, I ran into one of the maps and i was like oh i've used this with the same group before i'll just flip it and, and you know, flip it horizontally and flip it vertically they will never know that it's the same map right and that means i can use these maps many different times for many different groups over many different years and no one will know the difference i have enough maps here that i could probably run dungeons or other locations for the rest of my life so really really fantastic value that dyson provides and i wanted to build a tool for patrons of sly flourish to let you make make it even easier for you to a download these maps so that you have them all locally yourself and also give you a tool to be able to pick maps very quickly from it so that is the dyson commercially licensed map gallery available to patrons of sly flourish all right, so we have two big topics today. The first one is that Wizards of the Coast recently added Ghostfire products to D&D Beyond. They started with two products, one that's up there right now, which is... One that's up right now, which is the Lair of, of Etheris, and two is they're, they're going to be putting out the Drakenheim sourcebook by the Dungeon Dudes, available on D&D Beyond. So... The initial thought is, this is a great thing. Wizards of the Coast is expanding D&D Beyond to other 5th edition publishers. How is that not a good thing? And it could be. And it is, it is a good thing in many ways. Like the idea that Wizards is saying, hey, these works from these other publishers matter. We're going to let these other publishers publish on our platform so that they can reach an audience that they never would be able to reach otherwise. I got anecdotal evidence that like it boosted go current Ghostfire Kickstarters we're apparently I didn't look into the math on this, but this is what I heard that current Ghostfire Kickstarters doubled when the products started getting announced for D&D Beyond. So it's bringing a lot of new eyes to existing products. So how can that possibly be a bad thing? Right. I also remember at the community summit last earlier this year, community members were saying one of the things that they wanted Wizards of the Coast to do for the community was let the community start to sell products on D&D Beyond. So how can that be bad, right? And now they've done so. So they're doing what the community asks, right? That's all great. It worries me. And you're like, oh, I'm actually, I've been listening to your crap for a long time. Everything worries you when it comes to this regard. But I'm going to try to explain my worry. But I'm also going to offer practical things we can do. A, practical things we can request of Wizards of the Coast in regards to this. And practical things we can do regardless of what Wizards of the Coast does. So we're going di to dive into that. And this is for GMs, right? Particularly for GMs. But here's my main Issue. Wizards of the Coast, I'm going to read this, right? Because I spent a lot of time thinking about this hypothesis. As Wizards of the Coast adds material from other 5th edition publishers to D&D Beyond, they increase their dominance of 5e tabletop role-playing games, and they don't always act in the larger 5e TTRPG hobby's best interests. I think those two things are very clear. I think anybody that's looking at this, it's, it's a hard to argue those two points. Point number one is clearly if Wizards is bringing more publisher material into D&D Beyond, that is going to increase the dominance of D&D Beyond in the overall 5e TTRPG hobby. 
I mean, it's getting bigger. It's bringing in more stuff. More people are going to go there. More people are going to be happy to go there. More people are going to subscribe, yada, yada, yada. It's going to get bigger. On the other side, we know that Wizards, it is not Wizards' goal to support the larger tabletop RPG hobby, particularly the fifth edition tabletop RPG hobby. That is not their charter. Their charter is they are publicly traded. Their D&D is a brand managed by a subsidiary of a, of a publicly traded company. Profit is their goal, which means if it's in their better interests to close the window on other, on other 5e publishers, they should probably do so. But that's not good for the hobby. So we need to keep that in mind. Also, they have shown that in some cases, they have proven this earlier this year, that in some cases they will make very bad decisions for the larger community. We have evidence of this. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate that they might do something like this. They had tried and failed. So that's a big deal. Now on the other side of this coin. So that's, that's my main, it's the main statement I want to make is that and I've said this and they said, when you say that, I have a friend of mine, very, you know, a friend of mine, I very much respect who said, when I, I make a statement that says, when Wizards of the Coast adds fifth edition, other fifth edition publishers material to D&D Beyond, that that's not necessarily a good thing. And they said, well, that means you're saying it's a bad thing. And I said, no, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. Well, that's what you sound like. But I don't care what I sound like. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's not necessarily a good thing. For those two reasons, A, it, it further puts more power into one pillar and B, the people running that pillar have shown that they don't always have the best interests of the larger community at heart. I don't know how to, I don't know how that's wrong. I'm happy. You tell me either of those two things are incorrect. Please tell me and, 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 and tell me how. So what can we do about this? Two things. One, we can talk to Wizards of the Coast about the things that they can do that do help the larger TTRPG community. What are some things they can do, particularly with D&D Beyond, to help the larger TTRPG community? And by that, I don't just mean other publishers, because frankly, adding other publishers to D&D Beyond is great for other publishers. Although I'll argue that there's some things that might not be as great as they think. But generally speaking, I guarantee you, I know this is true, Ghostfire is totally happy to be able to publish their stuff on D&D Beyond. Darrington Press, probably, totally, I, I imagine they, they wouldn't have done it. Totally happy. And many other third-party publishers are saying, man, I can't wait to publish my stuff on D&D Beyond. I hope I get to be selected next. Which is part of the problem? Who gets to choose? Who's choosing which products go there? Why are they choosing those particular products? What is the criteria by which some get blessed to go up on D&D Beyond and others don't? Now, that sounds like, oh, Mike Shea, you're just mad because your stuff isn't going down there. Honestly, I don't even know if I would put it on there. And I bet you if it comes to the point where they come to me, I'm probably so far down the list that I'm probably not making many sales there anyway. But honestly, that really isn't my goal. So, you know, it isn't jealousy. I'm not jealous of Ghostfire. Ghostfire is so much bigger than me. They're a huge company with lots of stuff. Darrington Press. How can I be de jealous of Darrington Press? They're huge, right? I'm one dude. You know, it's me and my wife working on this stuff. So trust me, I am not jealous of those who did get that. And actually, if, if I was asked, I'd have to think about it a lot because of what I'm, some of the things I'm talking about. So definitely publishers love it. The question is, is it good for the larger community? And there's probably lots of GMs who are like, hey, I don't care. I like D&D Beyond. I want to keep using it. I get it, right? I, I get that that's, that that's a feeling. The question is, is that is that helpful for the hobby? Does it strengthen the hobby? Or are we building a brittle, you know, we're putting everything on one pillar and that pillar has cracks in it. 
I think I'm worried about that. So what do we do about this? One, we can lobby Wizards of the Coast to fill those cracks and to support the other pillars that, that, that build up the 5e. I'm going to talk about what those are. And we can strengthen our own grip on the hobby. We can build and make sure that our version of 5e is resilient to the whims of any company, not just Wizards, but any, we don't depend on any company for our joy with the hobby. That is really important to me. And that's why I'm bothering to talk about it on the show. So those are two things that we can do. Now, I want to make it very clear. Wizards, A, they're the one that built that larger community and they strengthened it tremendously when they released the 5.1 system reference document into the Creative Commons. That solidified the fifth edition community and that was a far bigger benefit to the community than anything any of the risks that are caused by a greater dominance of D&D beyond are dwarfed by how big a deal it was for them to put it out in the large put out the system reference document in the larger community and it's not even just about being able to write 5e compatible products it meant that some of the core fundamental uh, pieces of D&D that have been around for 50 years are now available in the Creative Commons. We don't have to worry about using the, five, the six ability scores. We don't have to worry about using hit points or armor class, all this stuff. If ever there was a question of whether you could, some of course said you absolutely didn't need their permission, but others were afraid. If I do that and I do something really big, are they going to come after me because I didn't use their license? Now all those questions are off the table. You don't have to worry about it. They also, and this is really, like nobody's been really talking about this, but they released the same 5.1 SRD in French, Spanish, Italian, and German. I talked about this on the show, but that's a huge deal. Now there's multilingual versions that they put out that are available in Creative Commons for all of these different groups. And just having those fundamental rules available in the Creative Commons is a huge benefit, not just to fifth edition stuff, but to everything. Shadow Dark is using the Creative Commons license for Shadow Dark, which is just, just to be sure that when they're touching on D&D things, they don't have to worry about getting sued because they're like, hey, you, you released it. Fantastic. Go download those system reference documents. Put them on your hard drive. Put them on a USB disk. Put them in a safe deposit box. Those are forever. They're forever and they're everywhere. And we can all download them and keep them. And that way, anybody, what if Wizards says, oh, we, we're never going to host those anymore. We, it turned out to be a really bad idea. We're not going to host those on our website. Don't depend on Wizards to host them. Go download them yourself. Now, good news, lots of people are. So hopefully it'll be around for a long, long time. All of that made the landscape much bigger. But when they added other fifth edition publishers to the website, that changes things because I made this statement back when the whole OGL thing was going on that why are they bothering to deal with the SRD? It's already out there and it's already been used by so many people. They already have a monopoly and that monopoly is D&D Beyond worry about that and that's exactly what they did so they said guess what we're not going to worry about the crusty old system reference document and publishers who are publishing on other platforms we have a pillar we paid 146 million dollars for that pillar i want you to think about that for a second wizards of the coast paid 146 million dollars for DD beyond do you think they're spending 146 million dollars to develop the new core books i doubt it is it I bet it's not even a tenth. I, I, do you think that they spent $14 million on the new core books? That's a lot. I mean, maybe, but that's a lot, right? So think about that. It, I'm making up numbers. I don't really know how much the money they're spending to develop the core books. I'm pretty sure it's not $150 million, right? That's a lot. Of, can you imagine spending 150 as a publisher? If I, <laughs> I don't know what kind of products I could make for $150 million, but it's a lot of product. Now, of course, I'm different than Wizards of the Coast. They have salaries and everything else, so it could be a lot. It could be 14 million, but I bet you it's not $140 million. So think about how much energy they put towards D&D Beyond and how much they want to get from it in return for the money that they spent. A lot. Anyway, they put other publishers of 5th edition material on D&D Beyond. Is that good for publishers? But I mean, they love it. And the big one is it's a non-exclusive contract. So of course it's good for publishers. I will offer four reasons, four things that publishers should consider 
when they're publishing on that platform. These are these are things that I'm, I'm almost 100% believe are true that make you think it may not be as good a deal as you think. It is definitely a good deal. It's probably worth doing. But let me explain what the main things are that are an issue with being a fifth edition publisher publishing on D&D Beyond. Number one is you are on a platform of your competitor. If I write Dungeons of Drakenheim is an adventure, it's a campaign adventure, and it is sitting next to Descent into Avernus and Rime of the Frost Maiden as two examples of campaign adventures written by Wizards of the Coast. You are on that same platform sitting side by side with their adventures, right? You are competing with their products on their platform. That is definitely a disadvantage to you. Whatever your revenue split is, and from what I have heard, I, I don't know what the revenue split is, but I've heard that the, the dungeon dude said it was a fine revenue split, that the revenue split that we got was, was an acceptable revenue split. I bet you it wasn't nearly as good as the revenue split that Wizards gets on their own products because they don't have one. They don't have to split it at all. Now, of course, in this revenue split, we're not, we're not counting the fact that Wizards spent $150 million to build this platform and has to pay the salaries and everything of the people that are running it there. So yes, there are other overhead costs that Wizards has. Is it $12? I don't know. I bet you, I, I, I bet you it's still in their favor. Wizards of the Coast can advertise their stuff for free on the platform. They don't have to pay anybody else to do advertisement on the platform. They can decide, are they going to charge people to do advertisement? Or they can select how they give advertisement to different groups. If this starts to open up a lot wider, how are they going to pick who gets to be advertised to? Is it just people they like? Is it just people who pay? Just people that are behaving correctly? People that aren't complaining about them on YouTube? How are they going to pick who to market and, and what? But you know they're going to prioritize their marketing for their product more so than anybody else because they're a business and that's what they should be doing. Wizards of the Coast will have all of the access to the data. They won't just have access to their data on their products. They'll have access to the data on every individual publisher and all of the publishers across the board. They'll know which publisher is selling more than whatever. They'll know which products are selling more than anybody else. And none of the publishers have access to any of that data. They're not going to know who they're, what kind of sales their competitors are getting. They're certainly not going to know what Wizards is getting. So Wizards gets all of the access to the data. The publisher gets none. They'll get access to basic sales data. They're not going to get a list of customers. They can't advertise them on newsletters. They can't do all of the things you do when you're selling on your own platform things that wizards of the coast is able to do on the same platform and of course it goes without saying but wizards products are probably two to three orders of magnitude bigger than the products of the third-party publishers which means the platform will always be dominated by wizards of the coast stuff and it means that once more and more stuff goes up there from other publishers the revenue is going to be much much lower compared to the stuff that wizards of the coast is going to be putting down what's interesting about that is we don't even think like wizards of the coast is a competitor to somebody like ghostfire because it's so much bigger. It's not even a competitor. Ghostfire probably doesn't see Wizards as a competitor at all because they're not even close to, they're not even the same stratosphere, the same atmosphere. They're not even the same planet or galaxy when it comes to sales and things like that. So they don't even think of them, but they are because you look at the products side by side. And as a guy who focuses on, hey, I'm looking at these products. When I look at a product like Drakenheim and I look at a product like Descent into Avernus, there is a difference between these two. One of them I really love. One of them I don't. They both cost me about the same amount of money, but one of them is really good, right? And guess what? It's not the one done by Wizards. So the products definitely compete, but the feelings from the publishers are probably that they don't compete that's that's issues with the publisher my main thing is if you are a publisher considering that it's worth knowing those things it's worth keeping in mind and you may say yes all of those things are true and i'm still going to publish there because it's still a really good deal good perfect no nope, no problem right if you if it's still a good deal i'm not saying it's not i'm not saying it's in in ghostfire's interest to not publish there they probably did it exactly right but all of those things are still true and it's worth considering when you're thinking about your larger business if you're publishing there but the real question is, what about GMs? 
right? I'm here to serve GMs to help you run better games, right? That's my charge. That's what I do here. That's what I'm focused on. That's what my products focus on. That's what I, all my, all my stuff is focused around helping GMs run better games. What causes publishers problems is not really my concern, but what is the problem? So I've heard from some, some people who say it's not a problem because my players don't use D&D Beyond. Cool. Perfect. Then you're not, then it's not a problem for you. And that's great. And you have a robust system and you probably don't need to listen to anything else. If you guys aren't interested in D&D Beyond and you don't use D&D Beyond, that's great. But I did a poll of 3,300 GMs. Granted, it's on my own channel and biases and selection biases and everything. I know, don't email me about how surveys are wrong. I get it. But of the surveys that I, of the, of the GMs and players that I surveyed, of 3,300 of them, 40% of them are using D&D Beyond regularly. 40%. That's a lot. Now, it's not everyone. It's not 95%. It's not even more than half, but it's a lot. It's a big percentage of the group. And the number of people who are playing online is much bigger than it used to be. And for, if you have one avenue, that's 40% of it. That's a, that's a big gravity well for going on. So that's a lot, that's a lot of people. So what are the real issues that a GM would face or, or a GM faces now when it comes to having a dominant, a, a single platform that's dominating the 5e TTRPG space? So if you're reliant, and this is a question of if you're, if you're not reliant on it, these aren't your problems. But if you end up or are reliant on D&D Beyond for, your, for, for running D&D, for enjoying D&D, you're stuck with whatever options are available on D&D on. That's either things that they publish, things that they don't publish. Whatever's on there, that's what you're stuck with. Almost everything is only stuff published by Wizards of the Coast. And now they have two products from other publishers that are there out of thousands of products that exist for 5e. Players often expect that the stuff that's on D&D Beyond is the stuff that they can use and the stuff that's not on D&D Beyond doesn't exist at all. I mean, I face this with friends of mine who are, we've been playing for decades and they're like, look, if it's in D&D Beyond, I assume I can use it. And if it's not in D&D Beyond, it's a pain in the ass and I don't want to use it. Now, you could argue, well, that's just a good tool, right? That's just Wizards of the Coast having a good tool and it's better than any other tool. That's absolutely correct. That's still brittle. That's not Wizards' problem. That's our problem. I'm not saying any of this is Wizards' problem. I'm saying this is our issue that we have to deal with. And if you don't have to deal with it, then you have to deal with it. And it's not a problem for you. But it's a problem for me. And it's a problem for many others. Whatever Wizards decides they want to do with 5e, you're stuck with. And they've changed things. So you don't get to choose other 5e platforms. You can't say, you know what I'd like to do is run Level Up Advanced 5e, or I'd like to run Tales of Valiant. Here, here's an interesting little mental exercise. Do you think it's possible that Demiplane will include Level Up Advanced 5e, Cubicle 7, C7020, or Tales of the Valiant? And to give you an idea, they already have Tales of the Valiant up on Demiplane. So the answer is obviously yes. There's no reason why they wouldn't include those systems. Same with like Shard, right? Shard includes other variants of 5e uh, besides just core 2014 D&D. Do you think that D&D Beyond is going to include Tales of the Valiant or Level Up Advanced 5e? Almost certainly not. Why? I can't imagine they would. They would never put a competing version of 5e up on their own platform. I have a big question of what they're going to do with the 2014 version of d and I don't really know what they're going to do with that on d and Beyond. Are they going to get rid of it? Are they going to call it legacy stuff? Is the character builder only going to work with 2024? Or are they going to have a version of the character builder that works with 2014 d in case you don't want to move? By the way, for books you already bought. Who knows? We're going to find out in six months, right? We're going to see where this goes. Whatever they decide, you're stuck with it. If you're dependent upon D&D Beyond, whatever they decide to do with it, you're stuck with. Wizards can change the material at a whim and you're stuck with it. They did this with Volo's Guide to Monsters and Mordenkainen's where they had big pieces of lore, some of which was very problematic and they removed it from, from there. But some of it was like, well, you know, I mean, 
I don't, I don't, I didn't hear anybody that said, hey, this stuff about mind flayers was really, really problematic and we really should get rid of it. Nothing like the hate disease stuff, but they got rid of it anyway. We didn't get a choice. It was just gone. Now, granted, many times where they're making the choices, Teo Sabadia talked about changes that they're making to the language of the 2014 player's handbook material on the site. All the changes that they made, I think are very good, very valid changes. It doesn't change the fact that they made these changes without saying anything and it's just done and it's just different. What if they want to change things that we don't agree with? What if the management changes and their perspective in the world changes? They could change anything, right? The more dependent on them we are, the more they have to change it. The more you buy into D&D Beyond, this is true for any platform, it's true for Roll20 and Shard and everybody else, the more you focus on any one platform and buy more stuff from that platform, the more locked in you are to that platform and have to go with whatever that platform is going to decide, even if it goes in directions you don't want to go. You're stuck there. And as, what, as they change their business model, you have to live with how they're going to change it. What if they go to a subscription model and get away from purchasing products? How, what if they change their pricing model? They've already done some stuff like some of the stuff they used to give away for free. Now they're charging you for it. There's changes to this business model. We don't know what that's going to be like. And $150 million is a lot of money. And a company usually is very nice to customers when things are going really well. They're not really nice to customers when things start to go downhill. So it's possible that things could shrink, that the whole 5e RPG market could shrink. And then they could start doing some really crazy stuff to try to keep their profit margins high because they answer to shareholders. Shareholders want higher profits. They don't like things to be level. They want to see new growth. They want to see new expansion. They want to see 10x, right? They want to see big multipliers. And companies can do a lot of weird stuff to try to get to that 10x that doesn't necessarily benefit us. Okay, what can Wizards of the Coast do for us? What can we ask them to do that would strengthen the hobby that really makes the whole thing stronger from the perspective of D&D Beyond? Sell PDFs. Why is Wizards of the Coast the only RPG company in the world to not provide PDFs? Big and small companies, companies that made millions and millions of dollars off of a single RPG are selling it in PDF. They are the only one that doesn't produce an RPG in PDF, a tabletop RPG in PDF. They do it for all of their other older editions, but they don't do it for fifth edition. Now the argument is, well, we don't need to. It's on D&D Beyond, you can get it there. What if I can't? Well, you can download the app on your app. Hopefully you have a device that works well with the app and you can maybe, by the way, the app is gonna call home every so often and it'll lock stuff if you don't have it. We don't own the product. Wizards is the only company not producing PDFs. Just produce it in PDF. If we buy a book online, let us, let us get the PDF. Let us import structured versions of subclasses, spells, items, and monsters into the D&D Beyond homebrew collections, your private homebrew section. So if you go to D&D Beyond, you have a homebrew area where you can add things like backgrounds and races and classes and subclasses, not classes so much, but subclasses and magic items and stuff. But you have to type it all in manually. If there was an API where you could upload sets of subclasses from other publishers, it would make it much easier, A, for, I would support Dean to be on even more because it's like you don't have to build a relationship with Cobalt Press and Cobalt Press could release their OGL released subclasses in a structured format that I could import into Dean Beyond. It would be so much easier. That would be great. It helps Wizards of the Coast because I'm using D&D Beyond more. It helps the other publisher because now they can publish material that's compatible with D&D Beyond. And it helps us because we now have these better tools and we still own the data. The stuff is still our own. We can use it for D&D Beyond, but maybe we use it for another homebrew tool. Maybe we write our own tool. Give us an official API to export the data we paid for on D&D Beyond in a structured format that we can use with other tools. An example would be character sheets, class features, spells, items, and monsters that we paid for so that we can use them in other tools. Mike... 
Why would they ever do that? That's a ridiculous thing to do. That's so stupid. They never, oh, wait, guess what? They're doing it right now. The character sheet already has an API and multiple people are using it to import their data into Foundry and they're using it to import their data into Shard. It's been around for years. They know they have it. They just haven't made it official, but it's there. Just give a seal of approval and say, yeah, okay, it's fine. We're, you know, you can use this data for something else. They're already doing it. We're already using it. Why not just give a seal of approval? What would be bad is if they broke that, right? And I'm worried that they would break that. But being able to say like, hey, I'd like to be able to export this subclass or this character feature and bring it into my other tool so I can use it there, it helps everybody. It helps Wizards of the Coast, it helps us. They don't have to worry about it. They don't have to build official relationships with Foundry. They can just support it. Continue to release your products on, D on Roll20 and, and Fantasy Grounds. I've heard them say things like, well, we always like working with our partners. They say things. I am worried. And this is one of my big, like, this is a candle that I'm watching. If this torch goes out, we know things are in a bad way. Continue to, will they release the 2024 books on Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds? That's, that's probably the big question. Are they going to give the Player's Handbook, Monster Manual, and Dungeon Master Guide material? Are they going to sell that on other platforms? Or are they going to say, we're going to just keep that in here. We're just, you know, right here in our little platform. Is it so nice in here? Everybody loves it in here. We're, we would never do anything wrong. And even better, this is where they could support the community. If they want to build a fair competing environment is put that material, sell that material like all of the other publishers do or many of the other publishers do on other platforms. Foundry, Shard, Demiplane, all new other new ones that are coming out. Keep an eye on them. Go say, yeah, we want to support D&D Beyond, but we also recognize that we want to compete with these other products. So all of these products get better. And by the way, D&D being as widespread as possible is really what benefits us. So we're going to go ahead and put it on these other platforms too. If your argument is they should never release anything out on Shard or Foundry, then why are they releasing stuff on Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds, right? And then if your argument is, well, they shouldn't release it there either, you're going to make a lot of people very angry. Compete in a fair environment, put your data, put the, you know, separate out the material that you're producing for the game from the platform that you, that you bought and release it to other platforms too. Helps us, helps those platforms, helps Wizards of the Coast. They get more sales channels. Follow through on your promise to release the 3.5 SRD into the Creative Commons, which by the way, was due at the end of the year. So that maybe they slipped, but the, oh, we've been very busy with things. I bet you've been very busy with things. You still said you were going to do this. And of course, this is going to be on the bottom of your priority list, but you said you were going to do it. Do it. Put out the 3.5 SRD in the Creative Commons. And this is a one I'm really watching. Release the updated D&D 2024 material into the Creative Commons. The words that they use about this are really fuzzy and they are offering room for interpretation like, oh, as long as we remain compatible with the old stuff, we don't need to do anything else. Release your new, if you update spells, if you update class options, if you update monsters, that stuff should be updated in the SRD. That's what I, that's what I expect to see. And that's what I hope to see. That's kind of what you promised you would do. All right. So those are the things I think wizards should do. These to me are not outlandish things to do. And I think all of them, I could argue, help wizards of the coast as well as helping us and helping the rest of the community. But we can't expect they're going to do that. And what we are, our whole purpose here is to try to make sure that our enjoyment of 5e is not dependent on any company including Wizards of the Coast. So what can we do to strengthen our game and to make sure we're staying resilient? And again, maybe you're already doing this and then you're good, right? Hey, Mike, we don't use D&D Beyond that way. Great, awesome, perfect. You're doing, you're, you're, you're doing what I would hope we would do. One, if you look and you say, wow, I really like Taldorai on D&D Beyond, that's cool. 
Maybe think about buying Talderai on their website instead, because you actually do get a PDF that you can download. You actually get to give them more money because they're almost certainly making more money on their own store than they're making on D&D Beyond. So if you want to support Darrington Press or Ghostfire or the Dungeon Dudes, buy the PDF from them directly. And you're almost certainly giving them a bigger take. And more importantly, you're getting a downloadable copy that you won't get from D&D Beyond that you can keep on your local desktop. Now, if you say, I really want to have that material also available in Beyond, you could pick it up there too. If the answer is, I only want to pick it up in one place, I would pick it up in the place where you get to uh, bring it, where you get to bring it there. So buy it locally. Buy it locally. You, you're giving them like 25% more of the money that they're able to take, give or take. And you get a version of it that you get to download and keep. Back their Kickstarters, right? Ghostfire is running a Kickstarter right now. Go back their Kickstarter. Back the Kickstarters for other 5e publishers who are building really, really cool material, making lots of really interesting things. And almost always those things offer PDFs and physical versions that you can buy and download and keep. And you don't have to ever worry again about what that, what's going to go on with that company, what's going to go. You have that PDF locally. This feels to me as strong as saying support your local game shop. We get a lot of people that say, look, don't just go buy your book on Amazon for you know 40% off. Support your local game shop. Go to your local game shop and buy it there. You know what else you can do? You can support your local publishers, smaller publishers who are building really awesome things for 5e by putting your money towards the thing, helping them fund the projects that you're trying to do. I do that on the show all the time. I talked about Raging Swan. I talked about all small products that are offering really interesting things that wizards would never do from people who are giving you PDFs that you can directly use and keep forever. When you're running your game, offer character options from other 5e publishers instead of just focusing on the stuff that's in D&D Beyond. I did this for my Empire of the Ghouls game. I said, hey, for this game, we're going to use the 2014 Player's Handbook, and we're going to use Midgard Heroes and the Toma Heroes from Kobold Press. And that way, we got to experiment and try some other stuff. Is it all awesome? No, sometimes not. Is it all perfectly balanced? No, sometimes not. Same is true with wizard stuff, right? There's lots of subclasses that people think are underpowered in wizards. There's lots of stuff, many, a few subclasses that I think make the game far less enjoyable when I've run it. So I don't think that there's really that big a difference between the quality of the stuff that's coming out from Wizards of the Coast and the quality of some of the best stuff that's coming out for, for other 5th edition. Find it, take a look at it, see what's interesting and bring it in. Try other online tools. Shard, Demiplane, Foundry, Fantasy Grounds, Roll20. There's a lot of them. Get used to them. Now I'm going to be perfectly honest here, directly honest. D&D Beyond is definitely by far the best character builder I have seen for 5th edition. The only things that it really lacks are, one, a way to filter sources so I can pick what sources are available to players. Please don't put a comment up that says, oh, they have that. You can just pick the campaign. You can pick the sources. That is not, that doesn't work. So that will eliminate players being able to see the book on their source list. It does not remove the sources from the character sheet. If they own it, or you own it and share it, then they have access to it on their character sheet, regardless of what options you select when you're picking what campaign material you have on your campaign page. So please don't tell me, Mike, you're wrong. Trust me, I've looked at this a lot. And, in, and one day I hope to be wrong. I, it is not this day. They don't have a way to filter material and that's really, that's bad. And obviously they don't have, a, they don't have access to all of the other subclass stuff that I could get from other publishers. I think they could solve that if they would allow me a way to import data. We could all figure out what it is. Import data from other companies or from people that convert data from other companies so that I can import subclasses easily into my collections, share it with my players, but not share it globally. But maybe share it globally because it's OGL content. So maybe, maybe there'd be no reason to share it. The reality is, aside from those things, aside from the fact that I can't really get easy access to other 5th edition publisher material on there, and I have no good way to filter the material that is there, 
definitely D&D Beyond is by far the best character builder that exists. And I've tried all of these. I've tried Shard. I've tried Demiplane. I've played a little bit with Foundry, not so much with Fantasy Grounds or Roll20. I've used the character builders for all these things. They have promise. And I don't want to knock anybody who's working really hard on this stuff. But a lot of time, performance isn't great. Layout isn't great. Exporting to a PDF isn't great. There's always features of this that aren't great. Shard, I think, is really, really good. Demiplane, I just started playing with. I got access to it. It's really beautiful, but it's pretty slow. I had to, I used it on a couple different browsers. Turns out it works better on Chrome. It's still pretty slow. And then the, the character builder and things. I actually went through a Pathfinder character builder. It looks really good. It looks very much like D&D Beyond. That's the strongest one. It still needs work, right? These are these are hard these are hard problems to solve. Foundry and Fantasy Grounds don't have external character builders that you can use without using the rest of their VTT. Roll20 has the character mancer with now is available. It's also a little clunky, little old. I know they're working on refreshing the whole system, so maybe they get there. So the reality is look, DD Beyond is still by far the best one. But if it went away you don't want, which one would you go to next? I would go to Shard. Shard looks really good. Shard works really well. My players saw Shard. They're like, yeah, we could definitely use this. That would probably be the direction that I would go next. And maybe if I decide to play with more third-party stuff, I'm going to use Shard instead of d Beyond. I'm going to recommend Shard instead of d Beyond. Overall, rely less on digital tools. If you already are like, hey, Mike, it's not a problem for us. We throw our phones in the, we have a big Faraday cage where we all throw our phones when we play our game and we sit with our physical books and pencils that we bought back in 1972 and that's how we play D&D. Awesome. And honestly, I wish more people would play with physical tools. I wish they would use regular character sheets with physical books. As GMs, it's not hard for us to use physical books. We don't need a lot of these digital tools. They make some things easier, but I'll tell you, a lot of times I see people struggling with the digital tools far more than they would if they just did things in paper. That happens pretty often. The usability of paper is really, really good. So I, I, I really like it. And here's the last thing you can do. As a techie, you can get involved. And one of the ways you can do this is helping to convert open gaming license data, data that companies from other publishers have said, yes, this is in the open, help make it available in a structured data format so that we have some path to be able to take the data that's typically locked up in PDFs in an unstructured format and use them in other tools and use them in other ways. Uh, I have been working with uh, Open5e. Open5e is a big group of volunteers and a website that uh, has lots and lots of material from lots of different publishers for fifth edition uh, that you can export as JSON and import into other tools. A lot of work going on there. They have a very active Discord server where people are talking about this and different degrees of technical capability are there. Everybody from doing some data conversion work to helping to write front end and back end code to fix it all up. You want to help with this? Go to Open5e, check out what they've got, see the kind of material they have and visit their Discord server and say, hey, how can I help? You will find links for all of that in the show notes below. So what exactly, what exactly is Watsi's role in the community? Or really, what do we want it to be? I've been talking about D&D Beyond a lot. And D&D Beyond, again, I don't want to overblow. I know like, I've been talking about it for like 45 minutes. But like, I don't want to overblow this. This isn't like the end of D&D or they're ruining the game. Or it's not a big thing. I get a lot of people, oh, you're, you're just saying that D&D is ruining the game. No, I'm not. And they can't ever, because of putting the 5.1 SRD under the Creative Commons, has made this game extremely strong. But are they acting as a greater gravity well for what 5th edition is like? For a lot of people, I say that that is happening. It's not the end of the world. It's not something that we can't work with. It's not something that we can't work around. And I think I'm, I've worked hard thinking of these things. I think that there are some things that they could do that are reasonable to me for them to do that would help considerably. And I think there are things that we can do regardless of what they do to strengthen our game. So that's really the main point that I want to make is like those, those things both exist. But there's a higher level thing, which is what kind of stuff do I want wizards to really be doing? And what role do I want them to have in this community? And to me, the biggest role is bringing new people into the hobby. 
they just announced this past week that Wizards of the Coast now has D&D postage stamps. The U.S. Post Office now has D&D stamps. U.S. Post Office revealed additional stamps, D&D related stamps. That's fantastic. This is exactly what I want Wizards of the Coast to do. I want them to have D&D plastered in every grocery store in America. I want them to have starter sets everywhere. They are the only people, because they have this tremendous force that no other publisher has nobody comes even close to bringing like a a household brand name i want them to push that out so far that people can't help but be like oh god i'm so tired of hearing about dungeons and dragons again you know what's interesting i don't see any ads for dnd it's so organic that I don't see any traditional advertisement for D&D. I don't know if that helps or not, but maybe that reach would be to people who aren't just YouTube and jerks on the internet complaining about this stuff. I think that's fantastic, right? I love that there's postage stamps for it. I want to see more stuff like that. The game most likely to win video game, like the video game of the year award is a D&D game. Almost certainly. I was talking with some video gamey friends yesterday. We we're all having lunch. And I and I, we were like, well, what else is a possibility for the for game of the year? And they're like, well, nothing's going to be Baldur's Gate 3. That's tremendous. Baldur's Gate 3 being as big a deal as this is tremendous. That, that I mean, you know, was it luck? Maybe, right? But I want Wizards to be working on that. I want them to make more movies, TV shows, books. Where are the novels? How come we don't have more D&D novels? Expand the brand. T-shirts, billboards, planes with little banners behind them saying, have you played your D&D today? Whatever. Expand it as much as possible. From the game perspective, the most important thing for that is have a starter set that's really good. Maybe one that doesn't kill off a bunch of characters with goblins at first level. And two, make sure those core books are really good. Right. If the core books, I'm pretty confident the core books are going to be good enough. I've talked to a lot of people and we have a lot of concerns about the core books. One of the other segments I was going to talk about in the show was the new Unearthed Arcana that came out and how I feel like that's moving the game towards more of a crunchy game when I think there was a lot of value in the game being more lightweight with 2014. But really, I don't the game has to be pretty bad to not help people see how good the game can be, get them into the industry, and then get them to see, wow, there's actually other versions of this game, or there's other ways to play, or there are house rules we can use. You know, I, that's what I want, is to bring people in. I'm so animate about this, because I think it's really important. I think D&D saves lives. Loneliness is a killer. And uh, particularly among adults, it's hard to come up with a good catalyst for people to get together and just hang out with other folks. And D&D does that. D&D gives us a comfortable catalyst to bring a bunch of people together regularly to sit and chat and be creative with one another, get away from our jobs, get away from other aspects of our lives that we might want to just step away from for a little while and share in creative work with other adults and enjoy it. And I think that's critical to our health. I think it saves lives. And that's why I think it's important. And that's why I think it's important to help wizards get in the position to make this whole hobby as strong as possible. So I talk a lot about where we should spend our time when we're prepping our D&D games. What kind of things do we want to bring to the table that are actually going to have the highest impact? And there's lots of things we do. And I think it's a very valuable exercise for GMs to look at the time they're spending on the different components of what they're doing and ask themselves, is this providing as high a value as possible to the enjoyment of the game, to my friends and I sitting around a table, whether it's virtual, whether it's physical, and enjoying the game? And so I wanted to talk about what some of these, where, where you get like the highest value for your prep time. What is the, where is the bang for the buck? Now, this is actually kind of a hard 
topic because it's really, really hard for me to not just point at the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master and say, there they are, right? You want your high value stuff? I spent a year writing it and they're all in there and it's those eight steps and I've tested them myself personally for years and many other people have used them and they have gone in there as well. But I'm going to try to take like a perpendicular look at it. So I'm going to try really hard not to just say, follow the eight steps. You're, I'm, I, or if I am talking about one of the eight steps, I'm going to talk about kind of a different way of thinking about it as this high value prep activity. But I think that this is, to me, a, the real core of like what it means to be a lazy game master, a lazy dungeon master, that you get more out of your RPGs by preparing less, not to zero, right? It doesn't mean that no prep uh, is going to be beneficial. But you want to say, where, where can I put that prep? Uh, that matters a lot. I'm going to give you an, an anecdote. I'm not going to say who it is, but there is another author of uh, of of D and D and Five E related books who offers advice books. Who uh, he and I were chatting on Discord just today. He knows who he is, and he mentioned that he happened to be at a gaming convention and he was talking about using some of the Forge of Foes stuff there. And he was thinking about it a lot. And then he went. He would talked about it a lot and thought about it a lot. Then he went there and he came back and said, "Yeah, it turned out they went in a whole different direction. They ended up kicking the room and killing the bad guy without facing all those people." And I thought like. This is somebody who's got four, I think four, one, two, three, at least four books written about monster tactics. And, you know, and, 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 and they, and I'm not knocking him, right? He knows, but it was interesting to me that somebody who's written all this stuff and talking about it and really, it was like, yeah, they went in a different direction. And I think that that's a really, that's something that GMs who have been doing it forever and GMs that are just starting now, we all face that same thing of, we prepped a whole lot of stuff that we thought it was going to go one way and it went another way. And that's kind of a core thing we need to grab onto when we're thinking about how to, how to prep our games. And it's also scary because it's nearly limitless in what we could be preparing for. We could be doing all kinds of stuff. There is a near limitless amount of stuff we could be preparing for. And that's terrifying. You look into the void and you are terrified by what you see, which is nothing and everything. And that happens when we're thinking about a prep. We don't have a structure. I have said this before. I think the reason why Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master is as popular as it is, isn't because it has the best system for prep, but because it has a system for prep. That it has a system that can work well enough that people have something, some lifeline they can grab onto and go with it. And I think that's why it's popular. Not because it's perfect, and certainly not only the book tells you you can change things all over the place to fit what you what you need, but it gives some kind of structure. It means that when you're staring off into the void of nothing and everything, you have something that you can kind of, there's a line coming out that says maybe this way. And you go, oh, thank God, right? Thank God there's some way I can go. So that's that's kind of terrifying, but we have to think about where they they go. And again, it's really hard for me not to not just say, you know, use the eight steps. But the characters, well, shit, I already failed, right? First one, focusing on your characters is almost always a great activity that's going to help you understand it. Now there are times I bet my friend who was at the gaming convention didn't know who the characters were and couldn't spend a lot of time on that. I've heard a new value. Here's a new perpendicular angle to this topic, which is you can also focus on the players and you can think about it from the player's perspective of what kinds of things players typically enjoy. How do you think they're going to want to interface with this? What are the things they like? What are the things they're going to do? So that focus on the players of what they want and, 
the beats that they're going to like, even if you don't even know who they are, even if you're going to a convention and they're brand new people, you can still say like, well, what's the decision that they're going to be able to make in these various scenes? What are the kinds of characters that are going to have fun in this particular activity? You know, I played a game where it was all like gambling and I'm like, I'm playing a barbarian. Like I have none of the ability scores. I have none of the attributes. I have none of the stuff that helps me gamble. What do I do in this scene? And the answer was stand on a wall, right? Stand leaning against a wall. Not a great scene. Everyone else is having a great time because they all had the right skills. I, me, I'm like, I was an athletics guy. Nobody told me bring the gambler character. I'm like, I'm going to play a barbarian, right? And I had a terrible time. So think about who they are. When you do, sir, flip the table. Yeah, that should have been, that should have done that. When you do have know some information about the characters it's really worthwhile thinking about their backgrounds thinking about the mechanics that they have what are the things that the player likes to do with that character mechanically so you can put those situations in there this gets into lightning rods and things like that really put yourself in the minds of the players of like what do they want from their character what do they want from their background what do they want from the story but also what do they want just crunchiness and what kinds of activities do they enjoy during the game very, very valuable. Oftentimes way more valuable in thinking about what the structure of your adventure is going to be because you don't know that that structure is going to follow the path that, that you're going to do. The hook. What draws the characters into the world? What makes them want to do something? And sometimes this hook, sometimes you have multiple hooks. Sometimes you have character specific hooks. But what is it that's bringing them in? Again, I'm cheating a little bit because the strong start is also kind of like a hook. But I'm thinking about it from a perpendicular angle, right? What is the what is the way that you're going to draw those characters in most effectively? And if you think about it from a hook perspective, there's kind of like three really good solid hooks that work well. One is justice, that you somebody wants to do something right in the world. Somebody there's a there's a there's a wrong that has been committed and the characters want to right it. Somebody's been kidnapped, you want to go save them. An evildoer is doing bad stuff, you want to you want to stop them from doing so. That is almost always a real good one. Vengeance is a strong one. We really hate this guy and we want to go after them. They did something terrible and we want justice for it. That can be that can be one. Exploration is a really, really good one. Hey, there's this whole area that we've never seen before and we want somebody. Not always a fantastic hook on its own. Just the idea of going and exploring it isn't great, but going and finding an object or learning something you don't know that you want specifically, that can be a good hook. Money, treasure, gold, that's a good hook. It's a really strong hook. I remember I was sitting at a game one time and we were all going around the table. This is an open convention game. And everybody was talking about what, like, you know, the, the DMS say, go around the player and talk about who you are and what you're looking for. And a lot of people are like, oh, I'm from here and my sister got kidnapped and I'm trying to do this thing. Or I have been dealing with the city and trying to solve their problems. And there was this kid who's like, you know, my name is, is you know, Jarek and I'm here for adventure and, and smiled. And we're all like, yeah, that's pretty much it, isn't it? Like we're here for adventure. Like when, and it's like the most open-ended generic interface, something exciting is going to happen and I'm going to get involved. And it's like the kid knew it, right? He knew exactly what it, what is that hook? What does it lead? How do you interface with the things that really draw characters in the game? I think is really important. The situation, right? I talk about situation-based games. How do you develop the overall situation that you're looking at? What's the location like? Who are the inhabitants of the location? What do they do when the characters aren't around? And what can the, what are the characters trying to accomplish when they go there? That Developing that situation and building that is a way more effective way, I think, of thinking about building an adventure than I expect scene A, scene B, scene C, and scene D to all take place. When you're thinking about the game as like a linear set of scenes, or maybe you have like a fork option of, well, scene A might lead to B or C, 
you're still kind of like narrowing it. But instead, if you say the characters are going to this place, they have a goal to accomplish. The, the place is laid out like this. And these are the inhabitants that are there. And this is what those inhabitants do when the characters aren't around. Now you have a dynamic situation that the characters can get involved in. It's not perfect for every single adventure. And there's certainly times where a more linear, straightforward scene-based adventure is going to work. But when you can return to the situation... You're, you're setting and spend your time building that situation that has a lot of value because the players now know they can go in lots of different directions and you're ready for them to go in those different directions. That works really well. The next adventure. When you're in the middle of running your game on the assumption that you have a game coming up, one of the things you want to prepare for now is putting the options out there in front of the characters about where they're going to go next. Now, sometimes you might have like a long section of adventure and you know where they're headed next. So you don't need to worry about this. But a lot of times it helps you to think about what are the three options that are going to come out after this. And this is this idea of thinking two horizons out. You have the horizon that the characters can see and you have one more horizon after that. And that's what you need to see. You need to know where they're going to travel to once they've hit that next horizon. And you need to do it one game ahead. That's something I don't talk about a lot, but I think it's really important. And I think it's something I'm doing a lot when I prep my games is thinking about what's next. Where are they going to go to next? What options are available to them? And it's important because at the end of the session, once they've done what they've done, you want to sit down with them and say, okay, here are now the quests that you have laid out. Which ones are you thinking about doing next? And even if they're not done with the current one, you can still kind of break character and ask the players where they're going to go to next. And that way you have an idea that even if when they finish this next thing that they're doing, I don't have to then ask where they're going to next because now I don't have anything prepared. Now I can, I already know what plan they had to where they're going next. And then I can prepare for that for the next game. But you kind of have to think one adventure out, right? You have to think, sure, I'm preparing the adventure that I'm going to run for this game. But then I also need to know where this is headed to next. And a lot of times it's going to be what options are available to the characters, making sure I talk about that with the players so that they pick an option and then I know where I can go with my next set of prep. So that's something I don't really talk about, but that's something that's definitely a high value, a high value activity. I know I'm not trying to just recite all of the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, but secrets and clues. Secrets and clues are really, really valuable. I have, I find them tremendously valuable. And I know many other people that have kind of taken that idea from Return and used it in whatever kind of prep system that they've got. The idea of what are the 10 things the characters might learn in the next session, regardless of where they might learn it, are really flexible. They're fast. They're small. They're pretty easy to do. You can usually do them in five to 10 minutes. And it gives you a lot of material to drop in front of your players to teach them about the world they're in, to teach them about their characters, to teach them about the storylines going on, to teach them the history of the locations they're delving into. You can teach them all kinds of things. And you don't have to worry about them going on one particular path to find it. You can drop those secrets and clues in when it makes sense, when they discover something in the game. You can, you can decide because they talk to this NPC, I'm just going to tag, tag that secret onto there. Very high value activity, very built, built around the idea of improvisational play because you're, you're deciding in the game where you're going to drop it in lots of flexibility and just a, a, a really tremendous value so the next time you're getting ready to prep for a game maybe sit down for a little bit and ask yourself look at all the stuff you're considering prepping and ask yourself which of this stuff is really high value what is the most high value thing i could work on if i only have 20 minutes to prep what is the thing i would prep for that 20 minutes that i know is going to bring a lot of value to me and a lot of value to the game when I'm running and a lot of value to the players. I think that is a really valuable question to ask yourself and a good way of thinking about how you prep for your game.
Every month on this Sly Flourish Patreon, I put up a Patreon Q&A. Any of the patrons of Sly Flourish can ask an RPG-related question. I answer all of the questions every Friday morning, and some of them I bring to this show. Other ones actually become the catalyst for articles, newsletters, and other videos. The first question from Tay is, any tips on how to encourage coach players to ask questions relevant to the plot when role-playing with NPCs so I can give them secrets and clues? Most of my group haven't been playing RPGs for long, me included, so this is probably partially inexperienced or the gaps between sessions. But when they speak to NPCs who are plot-related, they rarely seek to explore the plot with them. So I end up just giving the information as, during the course of the conversation, you learn X, or having the NPCs bring up the plot points themselves. Sometimes it feels like I'm forcing or railroading the plot and lore as a result. That can definitely happen you can and and this is a good sign that players are really only grasping i I like to say players only grasp about half of what you're putting out there and this is a good example where the players just might lose track of it it's very often where you're like boy the plot to this is crystal clear and they don't remember why they're here that almost rhymes right that a lot of times things we think are really clear in the game they're they're not and a lot of it's because like we're in these characters heads all the time and they got other they're busy players got other things going on in their lives one of the things you can do is sort of lead them on a little bit by talking about what their characters know or what their characters might do. I think it's okay. It's better than just deer in the headlight staring back and forth or you're sitting with your arms crossed waiting for them to say the right thing. I think it's okay to lead the characters on a little bit. It's not unlike Baldur's Gate 3 where your character's talking to somebody and some dialogue windows come up. You could offer those up as options. Well, you could ask them about X, Y, or Z. Do you want to talk to him about anything? You think this character, your character thinks that this character might know something about this thing you were talking about last week. Oh, that's right. I think it's okay to lead characters a little bit. You don't want to lead them down one line, but you could offer options for them. But the reality is just some players don't have that solid connection. The best thing we can do is kind of reiterate where they are in the world, reiterate like why they're doing what they're doing and offer some options for them to, to go forward. So I think it's okay. Again, don't beat yourself up about it. Don't, you know, this is a big thing. Be, be, be nice to yourself when it comes to GMing. And, and it's okay. It's okay to bring them forward. The main thing is like, do the players feel like you're leading them on too much? And then, you know, you might have to find another angle of basically making sure that they've got the material from it. A big one is ask them to take notes. Like if you can ask your players to take notes during the game, even if it's only one or two of them, they might remember the things that, that came up. And again, you can just give subtle hints. It's okay. Getting, 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 giving them subtle hints is absolutely fine. Sindhu says, DMing my first campaign and I have taken on board a lot of your tips with great success. Yay! I'm finding managing higher level combats more difficult as I manage everything else. It causes me to rush moves, making subpar tactical choices with my monsters and enemies. Yep. I tried reading books such as Monsters Know What They're Doing. And I've learned harsh lessons such as not bunching monsters too close together to avoid area of the effect. Haha. <laughs> I'm a fan of my PCs, but I want to challenge them in an enjoyable way. I feel comfortable with my tactical play as a player, but it hasn't come to fruition as a DM. Have you have you any other advice or resources to improve a DM's tactical management in battle? Thanks for all your content. You're probably asking the wrong guy. And it's because I don't worry about tactical tactical combat. Uh, players can worry about tactical combat. The question is, do you think do you think that the players care about the tactical side of, of that the monsters are doing? I think players like their tactical stuff a lot, but tactically optimal moves done by the DM could frustrate players. Now, it could be wrong, right? And there could be players, like I think every so often when, a, when, when NPCs or monsters do interesting things, like have special abilities they've never seen before, that's interesting. But like if you have, char- if you have monsters that are just behaving really efficiently, that actually can be a drag on players. Forgetting stuff happens. Running high-level battles is really hard. There's just, there's no way around it. Running high-level battles is hard. And 
keeping up that difficulty is really hard. I have found that the best way to keep up the difficulty is to jack up the dials. Number of monsters, number amount of damage those monsters do, number of hit points that they have, number of attacks that they have. Those are really easy ways to kind of increase things. It doesn't increase things from like a tactical perspective. The one thing I'll push back on is you brought up that like monsters know what they're doing has brought up harsh lessons like bunching monsters too close together. Bunch your monsters close together. Let the characters hit lots of monsters with areas of effect. Let them banish big dumb brutes. You know, bring out monsters that help them look off Awesome. I, that that to me is more important. And this the, the style of game that I enjoy, and that I've my fr- my friends have all enjoyed is one where it's really hard because of the size and the number of monsters that they're facing and the amount of damage they do. But they have lots of ways to screw around with those monsters and deal with it. And that's that's been a lot of fun. Like the idea of like oh you're surrounded by five ghouls. You know, but the, the character can just grab them one after the other and throw them in a portal to hell. It doesn't matter if they have 70 hit points each because they're ghoul masterminds or whatever. Like, you've got more ghouls. So, now again, that's my perspective. And there are lots of other people that would say, no, absolutely, you want to be better, a better tactical DM and you want to really give them the challenge of fight facing a tactical battle. I don't know. I, could, I feel like it could be a drag. And I think scope and scale can be far more interesting than tactics. But you're asking me. And so you get my answer. Tatum V says, do you ever bother with alignment for factions? I've been playing a homebrew world with the same players for about five years and have used four homebrew factions that reoccur in different campaigns that my players are now familiar with. I thought of adding some alignment to each faction could help me add consistency in how the factions interact with PCs and the world as we continue play. Am I overthinking this or are there utility in, invo- in involving my homebrew to add more structure to my f- future campaigns? I think f- I think alignment is great. I think the, the, the nine box alignment system is a really good shorthand for how groups in this case factions interact with the world around them we know what lawful evil means compared to chaotic evil we know what chaotic good means compared to true neutral and i think when you i think that's a really good lazy way to help define how a faction or an npc acts in the world is by just two words right you could throw two words in the beginning of the faction and it gives you an idea of where they stand what is a neutral evil person going to do that's going to be different than how a chaotic neutral person would do so yeah i think factions are great and i think factions i think the nine box faction system is a really good lazy shorthand that we could probably use more often i could do this 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 question challenges me to use them more often i started i think based on this i started adding them to things like my city of arches factions because i think that's an easy way for people to understand how this faction operates so yeah factions are fantastic how much you hang on to them i don't know yet you have to hang on too tightly to them like they're a guide they're not a rule so you can especially like you know chaotic people can act lawfully right but i think it can be really valuable to use that like two different just it's really powerful to have two words that that define an entire course of direction i really really like it so yeah Nakin says, I just ran a session that features aerial combat. Two characters spent several turns basically just flying to where the action was after the other two used Dimension Door or Teleport to zip right over the hostile NPCs. Any hot tips for running aerial combat? Yeah, do it in the story. I know I talk about this a lot, but the, the more you can focus on the story. One thing is, if you're, if you're hanging on too tight to the rules, that and I think I missed this when I answered this on Patreon. If you're talking about 
two characters taking too long to fly there, just shrink the distance. Just say it's going to take you a full round to get there, but you can get there. Don't worry about tracking specific distances and just say like, you know, that they're able to get there a little faster. No action movie really cared about the distance between two people falling in space. You look at like the Mission Impossible movies and there's all kinds of crazy aerial stuff that's going on and they care about the action. So it's not great to have characters that aren't involved in the fight because the other two use Dimension Door and Teleport to zip past them. You want them to have to deal with that somehow but you also don't want them to be bored waiting four or five turns to catch up like you know give them an extra round tell them it takes an extra round for them to catch up and then once they catch up then they can be involved in the situation as well when you're doing the aerial combat instead of hanging on to a bunch of aerial mechanics use ability checks let them do their fights and everywhere else and constantly use the narration to describe how they're doing this stuff where they're falling through space that's my recommendation. Delaney N says, I've been using the truths about the campaign in my zero sessions, as you've recommended, but Dragonlance is a whole new ball of wax. Should I ask or expect my players to know everything from the war comes to Kryn to the, and the class details from chapter one? I think their characters would know everything that is written in the beginning of the book. It's not practical to share around the source book, and I'm not sure I should expect them to do all that homework anyway, but reducing all of that to amazing lore to a few truths is impossible, if not disappointing. Should we DMs force some pre-reading upon the players at the beginning of a campaign? And how can we do that before starting? So one thing is you can still use secrets and clues for this. They don't need to know every, they're probably not going to know everything about Dragonlance if they read it. First of all, they're probably not going to read it. And second, they may not retain it. Another way is even if their characters already know stuff, you can remind them of the things the characters know when it's relevant to them in the story. So you can use your truths to, that set the baseline. You can get the campaign moving in a direction. And when that stuff becomes relevant to their character, you can just give it to them. So those are like secrets and clues with no point of discovery that they just know it that when they see somebody in a particular suit of armor you could say because you used to fight back in this war you know that that armor is from this other side i'm not a big dragonlance guy i don't remember any factions but you know you can you can bring up those pieces one bit of a time you could do it based on swords they find you can do it based on statues they see right think about lord of the rings think about the amount of information uh, that exists in lord of the rings you know there's uh, the similarian right it's got tons of stuff going on Think about how much of it they're able to tell to the characters and tell to the audience as the game is, as the movie is going on. When they go to Weathertop and, you know, which is the, 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 the Tower of Ottoman Sul or whatever, when they pick up the blade and it goes, this is a Nazgul, you know, this is a, whatever the name of the blade is, I forget, the special shadow blade that causes him harm the whole time. When, when Aragorn is singing his song about the elf princess who died, who fell in love with a mortal and then died, that's a bit of lore we can share that just happens during a scene as a secret and clue that the character knew. So there's lots of ways to reveal those secrets and clues. And there's lots of ways to take all of that lore that's in the beginning of the book. And it's easy for you because you can just copy and paste it into your secrets and clues. You know, what are the ones, what, when you look at the lore that's in that book, what's relevant to the next session, drop those in secrets and clues. I do this all the time with PDFs where I'll read like the background of a town and I'll cut it into specific sentences and I'll make them my secrets and clues. It's a really fast way to do it. So that's what I would recommend. Focus, you, share all of that lore as little slices of it when it's relevant during the game as secrets and clues. 
Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today for the Lazy RPG Talk Show. If you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff like this from me, the best way to get it is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You get a free adventure generator PDF sent directly to your inbox, plus a weekly RPG-related email that contains links to all of the other things I do. You can also support me directly on Patreon, getting access to the Patreon Q&A, the Dyson map server that I just showed, all different kinds of stuff you get for being a patron. And you can pick up any of my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore. Links for all of that are in the show notes below. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.